0: About Your Mother is back with our series, What Happened Then?, featuring stories from a part of our history not known to many. My first guest, her book, The Baby Scoop Era, was written to understand how when at 17 years old, she found herself pregnant and forced into exile to surrender her baby. A period of time where millions of single unwed mothers were forced into homes where they lived in secrecy and shame. This is Karen's story. Karen, thank you for being on About Your Mother in our special series, What Happened Then? Featuring stories of adoption and broken mother-child lineage pre-Roe v. Wade to today. As you know, your work means a great deal to me as your book, The Baby Scoop Era, was by my side as I pieced together my mother's story to better understand my own. I am honored to have you here to talk about your work and share your story. So let's start from the beginning. What is your connection to the Baby Scoop era and your experience as a young girl forced to surrender your baby?
1: Well, my experience happened during the Baby Scoop era, which was um, a short window of time between the end of World War II, which is approximately 1945, and uh, what people consider the age of choice for women, which was Roe v. Wade, February of 1973. So I was a 17-year-old Almost senior in high school, I had dated my boyfriend for mm, a little over a year. He was a twin and we went to the same high school. And so we went to study all through our junior year. And then that summer, he and his family and his twin brother moved to Norfolk, Virginia, uh, because his dad was military. And I was a totally forlorn. Um, I had switched high schools in the middle of my um, high school years, and so I was already unsteady. And here I was without my rock. You know, my boyfriend was everything to me, and he was just the best guy. That summer, actually it was that fall, um, he and his twin brother invited his brother's girlfriend and I, uh, to visit them at their home in in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, for the weekend to see the Love and Spoonful concert. So we went there uh, that Saturday by bus, and then we came back. It was about a four-hour drive away from my family home uh, in Northern Virginia, and that's where I got pregnant. I was really very naive uh, and this was my first experience and he had snuck out of his bedroom and, and she and I were in the living room and we didn't have any good supervision. So I was I was really like just like putty in his hands because I was I felt so uh, without land under my feet at that time. I I was uh, fearful of losing him and I just gave in. We really didn't know what I was doing, what it was about. I get home. I miss my first period. And I'm thinking, uh oh, I'm in trouble. Of course, that was the, you know, the key word uh, phrase. I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. You say that everybody knows what what it means. I just had my senior year picture done, fortunately, I waited until I was almost three months pregnant and didn't even tell anybody but my dad. um, I stopped at a payphone getting off the bus one day from school and called him at the Pentagon. He was in the Air Force. And I told him, I'm in trouble, Dad. And he was my best friend. He was really everything to me. My mother was a very cold person. So he said, Don't worry, I'll take care of things. Everything's going to be okay. And by the time I told them, I was already probably four months along and I had had to go to school with my, we were wearing dresses to school. Then we could not wear pants and we had to wear dresses that the hem touched the bottom of your knee. So my dresses wouldn't even zip up and I had to wear a cardigan sweater over my dresses in order to hide the open zipper. And I knew I couldn't wait any longer. This, This was it. That was my experience of having to tell and and how I I got pregnant. So my mother found out from the church that there was a maternity home in D.C., which was, I would say, 10 miles from our family home, and uh, arranged to put me first into a wage home. So I was sent to a home in, a wage home is a place where you, you ride out your first month's when you're showing, I was to live with them in their brownstone, which is an old townhouse brick building, three stories high. And it and that development kind of encircled a really old church. It was at Thomas Circle in D.C. And I was to take care of their two young children. As I recall, one was probably three and the other five. I didn't cook, but I did clean to earn my wage, which I never got. Hmm. So, the attic was the third floor. It was unfinished. It was very cold. The ceiling touched the top of my head. It had one window in it. And I had a mattress, a twin mattress on the floor. And I had a metal two drawer cabinet chest in which to keep my very few items of maternity clothing and then i i had a bathroom with a clawfoot tub and i was miserable i was very unhappy they had me serving alcoholic drinks at their all the parties that they threw which seemed to me to be every weekend and i was their conversation piece i was their little unwed mother karen Mm. So it was a very humiliating experience. And by this time, I was so incredibly depressed. I remember crying a lot and looking out that window at that church and thinking of that song uh, by the mamas and the papas, California Dreamin', wishing I was in California where it was warm and I was free instead of prisoner of this place, which I really didn't know where I was except in D.C. somewhere. So I called my mother and I said I, I was feeling very suicidal and I said you have to get me out of here or I'm leaving. I'm walking out the door and I don't care where I go, but I'm not I'm not staying here anymore. Mm-hmm. And so she never asked any questions about you know what my daily life was like, no matter where I was the whole time I was gone. So she said okay, uh, so she she got me transferred to a home in McLean, Virginia, and I think. The man of the House worked um, funnily in the House of Representatives in Congress. His last name was Smith. I tried to find him since I walked out of the fog and needed questions answered, and I I wasn't able to. But the people there were very kind to me. Uh, Even for a week uh, when they went to Connecticut, they allowed me to stay with my aunt who was then working in D.C., so I stayed with my aunt in her apartment because I didn't want to go to Connecticut with them. On May 17th, 1966, I hit my, my seven-month mark of pregnancy, and so it was time for me to enter the maternity home as an inmate,
0: oh.
1: which is how they referred to unwed mothers at the time Mostly in the media, mostly in their writings, not while I lived there. Um, We were called by our first name, last initial. So I was Karen B., as in boy. If somebody else had the same first name, they would go by a different last initial. If they had the same last initial, they would go by a fake name. But we were never to say who we were, where we, we were from, uh, give any personal details about our lives. So the maternity home had three buildings. They had the main building, they had the dorm, and they had the new mother's building or the po- postpartum wing. And the main building was used mostly for visitation by outside people, parents, and the girls, their daughters. So it was very nice. In the attic of that building was our classroom, and um, I would be driven, no, no matter where I was living at the, in the wage homes, I would be driven there every day for my classes, and they were given by a tutor, one woman, and the class sizes were very small. When I was in class, I was the only senior, and there were two other girls that were of different ages. And I don't know their names and I don't know what grade they were in, Um, but I graduated from there um, that June. Um, And a picture was taken of me from the front in my cap and gown of the colors of my high school, red and white. So I was assigned to one of the rooms on the second floor. There were three floors of the dorm and my roommate's name was Pam. I don't remember her last initial. Uh, We bonded right away. We were about the same age, and we were given a piece of paper that gave the rules and regulations that said what time you were to arise, what time breakfast was served. So get up at six, eat breakfast at seven. Between that time and lunch, um, girls had a chore, but my chore, I did not have a chore because I was still in school. So I was expected to study and take quizzes, et cetera. Some of the chores would be sweeping, vacuuming, washing floors on your hands and knees, washing the bathroom. Um, One mother that I have met since I came out of the fog went to the same maternity home and her job Mm shockingly was to grind up the afterbirth in the kitchen. Oh my goodness.
0: Oh wow. I did not expect that. (laughs) Oh my heavens.
1: Yes. And I never knew that until I met her online. I mean, that's shocking to me. So I think that she was, um, maybe five years older than me, so she was there at a time when the girls actually gave birth in the basement of the main building. Oh, my heavens. During my time, they did not. Our days were spent just talking about mostly pregnancy, not knowing what was going on in our bodies. We didn't have any schooling about it. Nobody gave us classes, which was intentional. They did not want us to bond with the baby, the baby. It was always called the baby because they saw that as being a negative. We get in in the way of us surrendering our babies. So it was always the baby. We knew what month we were in because we would be told, especially when you got to the last month of your pregnancy. So seven, eight, and nine, I was there for three months. So we would watch TV, talk about TV. We would play cards at the card table. We would. They even allowed us to smoke. Oh, okay. Different time. I don't think I did. I don't believe I smoked there. I did later in my life.
0: And as I understand it from my mother, you were not allowed to go outside. I think she went outside once on a guided tour, but they had to be covered
1: up. Surprisingly, we were allowed to go outside. Okay. It, we had a sign in and sign out sheet. We could only leave with at least one other mother, and we had to wear a fake wedding band. Ah, they were in a basket by the front door. They didn't encourage us to leave the grounds. So, while you're there, young,
0: yeah. pregnant, confused, away from your family, they are not counseling you or emotionally supporting you at
1: all. No. The entire oh, No, the emotional support of counseling was, you've made this mistake, you need to correct it, and the correction is that you have to surrender your baby because you are not equipped, old enough, or experienced enough to raise the baby. So the baby has to go to a married couple. That was counseling. It was always what was going to happen to you after the baby was born, not up until the baby was born. That was the only counseling we received. It was the daily mantra of you have sinned, you have, you know, broken the worst law you can, you can break as a girl. As the boys of course, of course, walked away free and easy because, you know, of course, back then there was no DNA, and we could not prove who the father of our baby was. And we were not allowed to call any friends, any, anybody not on an approved list from the payphone that was around the corner from our living room. You could not receive any letters unless they were on their approved list. And that was up to the parents, not up to the girl. It didn't matter your age. So I was sitting in, it was my nine month mark and I was five days late and I was sitting in the living room on the second floor watching Bewitched, I'll never forget, in black and white on the little TV. And my water broke. And I, I had heard from some of the other girls that that's what it was called. So I went to the pay phone around the corner. I was hysterical. I was crying. I was so terrified. And I called home to my family. My mother answered the phone. And she said, what's the matter? And I said, my water broke. And I'm scared. And she said, I'm busy. I can't talk. And she hung up on me. I'm sorry. So I went back to the living room and I sat down. And at that time, someone had already gone to the end of the hall where lived a full-time house mother on each of the three floors. So the house mother said, OK, I have called a cab. Mm-hmm. And we are going to go downstairs and we are going to get in the cab and we are going to drive to the hospital. So, you know, compliant little terrified me, you know, still sobbing, gets in the cab and it's a nighttime and we drive over to the hospital and we go into the emergency room and she says, go in and tell them you're from the home. So I did. I went in by myself and told them I was from the home and I guess this was such standard practice that <laughs> they knew exactly what to do. They put me in a wheelchair and they wheeled me up to I don't know what floor it was, but it must have been the the birthing area and placed me in a room that was sectioned off with white curtains to the floor, ceiling to the floor. So I had a square that I was in um on a hospital bed and I had a big black and white clock like they have at school I had no parent no friend no other pregnant girl no house mother was there and I would just watch that clock I think I had two or three contractions and a nurse checked on me and said how are you feeling? and I said, well i'm I'm starting to hurt, and she went and got a a needle and didn't even tell me she just stuck it in me and said oh, you're gonna you're gonna go to sleep." Huh. So they knocked me out completely. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up, um, having delivered baby, the baby, I asked what I had, and they said you you had a girl." So I asked other questions and they said, you know, we can't tell you those things. They were pushing really hard on my stomach and I couldn't figure out why and it hurt really bad. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting jabbed with a needle on the side of my chest, up by my breasts. And the nurse said, that's so your milk dries up. And then a nurse came in and said, you're going back to the home this morning. And I said, "Okay." And. They now, you know, 17 back then in 66, not 17 today. So I was very compliant. You know, I knew not to rock the boat. I was terrified. And I think they, they wanted you terrified. Next thing I know, they're reeling in the bassinet and my baby was in it. And I was, I was so surprised and I was so excited. And they said, okay, sit up and get dressed and you're going to hold your baby and the cab's going to come for you. They are taking you back to the home, which I had no idea was going to happen. And you didn't know it was going to happen from day to day, not not tomorrow or the next day. Never knew. I was driven back with the house mother back to the home. This was this the next morning. I, I learned later my the so-called labor and delivery lasted, I think, four hours. And I had learned what I was given later um, much later when I demanded my hospital records. So that was, that was shocking that my baby was really forcefully expelled from my body like that in the first pregnancy, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that at the time. So we get back to the maternity home and the house mother takes my baby and walks up these steep steps to the front door of the postpartum wing. Now, not these All three buildings did have um, attachments to each other that were closed off. So when you were pregnant, you could go from the dorm to the main house, but you could not go from the dorm to the new postpartum, uh, new mother wing. And that was all deliberate because they did not want you having any contact with new mothers. They didn't want you to know what the experience of labor and delivery was. I was there for 10 days. Daily, they would bring the babies out. And your baby was brought out to you if, I guess, your parent had approved it. And the mothers that were allowed to feed their babies every four hours were told to take the chair beside their bed and put it in a circle, hold their baby, feed their baby, birth birth their babies, and hand them back immediately. Mm -hmm. There was no cuddling. There was no undressing them aloud. It was simply the mechanics of feed your baby. And then we're taking them back to the nursery. Yeah. So we fed them during the day, but we did not feed them during the night. The Mm -hmm. ones that were allowed to. And then on the 10th day, the only visitor I had was my older brother. Visited one day. He's the only one that knew, or I thought uh, from my family, and he visited me. But on the 10th day, I found out my mother and my aunt were coming, and they were coming for the purpose of going down to the Catholic Church a block away to baptize the baby. I said, Okay, when's this going to happen? They said a few hours. So I said, Okay. So then uh, the next thing I know, I'm being led by my caseworker to a room down the hall that was empty, except it had a rocking chair in it. Mm. I'm sorry. This happened after the baptism. I should have stated that. And my caseworker said, okay, sit in this chair. And I said, okay. And she came back about five, 10 minutes later and handed me the baby and said, you have one hour in which to say goodbye. Oh, Karen. I don't know how you say goodbye in an hour, but um thing to do was quickly get to know my baby as fast as I could. You know, I unwrapped her and I I looked at her hands and her feet and, you know, I wanted to see her body and, you know, dress her and und- undress her and dress her and and wrap her back up and put her on my shoulder and rock her and, and sing to her and and i remember telling her all about her dad what a nice guy he he is and and that he doesn't know where we are and if he did he would come for us and um that we had gone steady in school and you know i was so so sorry that i that this is happening to her and if there was any way i could prevent it I would, but I had nowhere to go. I had no money. How can you have money when you're locked up? <laughs> Poor.
0: Well, and society wasn't Five giving months. you the freedom, yeah, to yeah, do anything. Freedom
1: is is completely taken away. I mean, it was more of a prison than it ever was a home, um, with all the rules and and everything that they had. And I remember even one time being outside in the backyard of that place, and my my roommate and I were sunning ourselves on these chairs, you know, doing what 17-year-olds do when they have any semblance of freedom. The window to the new mother ward opened, and a new mother yelled out to us, and she was quickly yanked back. And that window was slammed shut because they didn't want us to know anything. But before I even left, before I even said goodbye to my daughter, and after I had returned from the baptism, this young new mother came up to me, and I didn't know her. She must have been on a different floor, and she whispered in my ear, do you want pictures? And I said, oh, my God, yes. She goes, okay, quick. Having a camera was strictly illegal in there. Even for yourself, even for your own personal reasons, it was strictly prohibited. So quickly, I, you know, I held my daughter in a chair and she took a picture of us together. And then she said, put her on the bed. And I put her on the bed and she took more pictures. And And she said, OK, wrap her up and, and go sit back down again. And she goes, write down on your on a piece of paper. She handed me paper and pencil and she said, write down your address where you live and I'll send them to you. And I thought, oh, she'll forget, you know, I'll never get them. I'm I'm, you know. But I did. I actually got them in the mail. It was absolutely miraculous.
0: And it's such a, you know, it's it's the picture that's accompanying the episode. It's such a there everything you're describing, you can feel in that photo. Let's
1: let's see it say Karen, it's in your eyes. It is. The look, like misery, like, oh my God, is this really happening? The
0: fog that you talk about, right? You can see it's it's, it's born there. Yes. That it's going to follow you for so, so long.
1: Post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, yeah, it took me many years to even remember some details about that time in my life because we were told over and over this daily mantra of, Forget this ever happened. You'll go on and have babies you can keep. You know, your life will change and you'll be happy and you won't even remember this happened. Right. Which is insane. Insane. <laughs> you cannot I, forget having a baby you want to keep and raise and love and be loved by. It, that, just, that's insane. Any it normal, is. mature, healthy-minded person knows that just is not, that's not true. I returned home and I was absolutely so morose. I mean, I stayed in the basement bedroom. I locked my door. I played music by the Rolling Stones, like paint it black and under my thumb over and over and over and over again, all day, all day, every day, just filled with rage, just rage. It was just pure rage that I was expected to do that. And I had no choice about it. And It was a gun to the head experience. I never, ever had any counseling about what my legal rights were. I have not met a mother who was told what her legal rights were. I never got a copy of the document that I signed. I was not even told to read it before I signed it. I was mm-hmm. not instructed what it said. And again, I'm not... I, at the time, was not familiar. We didn't have information highway. We didn't have, Mm -hmm. you know, access to, you know, birth control or it was all locked up in the libraries and there was no, you know, birth control information available to us. And there was no legal information available to us. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We were very compliant. And I think they relied on that to get our babies. Yeah. And
0: we've talked about this. It was like a perfect storm and the perfect crime yes. yes. because there was no contraception. You were so isolated. You were told to forget what happened to you. Families and society supported it because they frankly,
1: didn't know better
0: uh, is being kind, I think. <laughs> but it was the way that society was structured, that a young
1: I think they did know better, but they they chose to protect themselves more than their children, right. And, and um you know, the market was there for these babies by people that could not have their own children. and mm-hmm. the demand was massive. And it still is The numbers are staggering,
0: Karen. as you know, because you've spent decades doing this research, From 1940 to 1970, an estimated 4 million mothers in the U.S. surrendered. But close to, this this is what really baffles me, close to 2 million in the 60s alone. Right. So there's 2 million or more, let's say, women, mothers like yourself, who went through
1: this traumatic
0: experience.
1: And you know that many mothers pretended they were married when they gave birth. So there was a lot of numbers that were not even included in the count.
0: You wrote, you know, sitting at my desk one day, pondering these questions. Here you were, a good girl. You ask yourself, how did this happen to me? And this leads you on, like I said earlier, decades of research. And I think the brilliant thing about the baby scoop era is how you use not only surrendering mother's stories, but the voice of social workers, historians, sociologists, doctors, industry participants to really put together this era and make it real. It's not just you telling your story as you are now. You went and you went from every point of view and every perspective. Let's talk about the book and why this is such a painful part of our history that we don't talk about.
1: Well, I was you know, I was how it came about was I was sitting on the subway one day going to work and I worked for lawyers. Um, i I had been a nurse years ago and and I was a certified paralegal in criminal law. And I started thinking about what did these people say? How did they work? There must be things that they wrote and how how they talked to each other. There's got to be material out there about my time my experience back during this short window of time. So I got on the internet and I started looking for every single book and dissertation and paper and conference paper and uh, magazine article and what have you relating to unwed mothers, unmarried mothers, infant adoption, maternity homes, all the keywords, And I started finding a wealth of information to read. You sure did. <laughs> so I'm so I'm working full time, raising two children, I'm remarried. I'm reading on the bus to the subway and then reading on the subway to the job and then trying to fit in reading while I'm at work working for lawyers in DC. And I start with my highlighter, you know, just marking up these books like crazy, I was on a mission. I had to find out, you know, these things that they were saying, and I was stunned at what I was reading. Some of the comments that they made and and the mindset that they had and the methods that they used and the admissions that some of them made, even the warnings that that were sent out. And I thought, wow, I have to start sharing some of this information in my adoption group so that what I call our taken children who are now adults know what we mothers were up against and trying to keep them. They need to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And the mothers that are suffering and blaming themselves and some committing suicide and some still in hiding because of the fear and terror, they needed to know the truth. (laughs) <laughs> that really they weren't responsible there were like you said the perfect storm all these things came together we didn't have information yet we had a lot of sexualized movies songs and and uh, written material and we had no way to protect ourselves and so i started typing up every single comment uh, every quote by adoption caseworkers, which were the ones working in agencies and maternity homes, people who were publishing these materials to teach each other how to think and and how to operate, the concern that I had about what they were saying and doing. Mm -hmm. And I typed it all up and I shared it in my groups and people were just horrified, just horrified. And one of my friends who is a former teacher and she's my age and uh, very supportive, uh, reached out to me and she said, I told her, she she knew about all the the, uh, comments that I had shared. And she said, Karen, you really need to publish this book.
0: I mean, some of the language in your book, and let me just read this one quote. Having got pregnant under morally censored circumstances, the unmarried mother compounds her crime by not bringing up her own child. Another one this is quoting Diane Welfare I don't know if you remember this one but adoption practice works on the premise that in order to save the child mm-hmm. you must first destroy its mother
1: absolutely they rendered us dead as if dead and there's even a an article written by David Smolin, and it's I forget the exact title but he he discusses how the mother was rendered aborted mm-hmm. I mean, we were we were, you know, cut out of the picture and just I, I call it thrown away, just mm-hmm. thrown away mm-hmm. by and our then, families, by our culture, by our neighbors, by our schools, by everybody. And nobody ever cared how we were or what we went through. And how you were going to recover.
0: As we're kind of wrapping up on this conversation, if you're willing to talk and comfortable to talk about it, were you able to reunite with your daughter?
1: yes i was a I was able to find her in late nineteen ninety six and it happened through a an adoption group that I joined. Contact was made by the leader of that group. My daughter was very excited to have been found. We started communicating via email. She wasn't ready to meet face to face yet for a year. My daughter um, I met in nineteen ninety eight finally in I can't remember the month. It was in the summer. But we met at a restaurant and we stayed together talking for three hours. So I get this email from her that she needs to pull away. She needs to focus on her life. She hopes I understand. And I'm like, you know, I'm really just crushed, but I'm I'm trying to understand. And I tell her that. You know, all I ask is if you let me know if you ever get married or have a baby. You know, if you have a family, I would like to know.
0: Mm,
1: Karen. One day about, I'd say a year, a year and a half later, or two years maybe, I'm at work in D.C. and I'm looking at the Washington Post and I look at the celebrations section and I see a picture of her and her new husband. Mm. And I never look at that section of the paper. And here she is with a baby on her hip who looks to be about six, seven months old. And I thought, oh, my God, not only has she had a baby, but now she's married, and I didn't get any notice about it. Mm. I mean, it just broke my heart. All over again. All over again. I mean, this this is like the second loss of her. That I had to go through, the first was sixty six and and now this was the year two thousand., uh, she got married in September, and so the baby was seven months old. So I'm like, well, I have to go on with my life. So I'm trying so hard to focus on my research and my book and and, you know, trying to educate. And share what I know, what I've learned from reading with everybody I was coming in contact with on the Internet and putting my book together. About six months later, I get this email from my daughter, and I'm so excited. I start reading it, and she says, I hope you're sitting down. Oh, boy. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. And she goes, I have been diagnosed with ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah, a
0: brutal disease
1: horrible. I knew from having been a nurse years ago in Santa Fe that that's probably the worst disease you can ever, ever get Mm -hmm. uh, because you become trapped in your body and all you have is your mind. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I'm just sitting there stunned, just frozen and just, I mean, knocked over. And she says, the doctors say I have only five years, but I don't believe it. I don't think that's going to happen. And I, And I wrote her back, and I I, I can I hardly even remember what I said. I'm just without words, you know. And then February of 2007, she writes to my oldest daughter, Brandy, who they had exchanged a few emails since their meeting, And she said, "I have a bad bone infection. I'm in the hospital." And if you would like, you and and your mother, and your sister can come and visit me. So of course, you know, we jumped on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we drove to Arlington. Um, there was a hospital there, and we visited with her. But I wasn't even allowed to talk to her privately. But I told her how much I loved her again and again and again, and you know that it was something I never wanted to do. And please try to understand, you know, that I'm I mean what I say. You know, you were my daughter. I wanted to raise you. You know, I I tried to say everything I wanted to say to her because I didn't know how much longer she was going to have. The next thing I know, I'm, my daughter's getting a call from her, then husband. Saying that my daughter had chosen to be unplugged because she had been intubated uh, eventually. And she, I can't even imagine how long she, you know, lived with all of that equipment and all of that Mm -hmm. to deal with for so long. She had great caregivers, but they were going back to college and she just did not want to get new caregivers. And she said, I've had enough. And she didn't want to leave her son, who was then, I believe, seven years old. So I can't even imagine what making that decision must have been like for her. I know it was hard for her husband. And I know it was, you know, it's agony for him and for her son. During that call, he told Brandy where the funeral was going to be. And he invited the three of us to attend. So we did go and it was so heartbreaking. And I kept saying, oh, I hope they play Ave Maria because that's what her adoptive name was. And they did. And of course it was, you know, I mean, it was just so emotional for all three of us and we went outside and we expected someone would approach us you know maybe you know the man or the woman or the husband nobody did they just stared we we really felt like outsiders and but we were invited so yeah we just left and went home so that was the third and final loss I'm not the only one. There are many mothers that have lost their taken children.
0: Well, Karen, it's a heartbreaking, multi-layered era and situation. And I'm just so honored and grateful that you have done the work because I know it hasn't been easy because it happened to you, but that you've done this work that helps put the pieces together for families like mine Mm -hmm. and someone like yourself doing this work helps. Families and people like me put it, the pieces together and to understand the pain that you all went through and to just say, I'm sorry it was this way. I know it's not easy work, but thank you. Thank you for giving voice to these millions of young women. Thank so you.
1: We're... Thank you for giving me a voice today.
0: Karen's story is as moving as it is heartbreaking. Her desire to understand what happened to her then has given shape to a period in our history, which is now at the forefront of today. Her book is important to me personally, as it was by my side when I pieced together my mother's story and tried to understand her experience surrendering her firstborn. I'm glad Karen had the fortitude to put the research together and help families like mine understand what was happening to young women during this time. The pain of surrendering a child ripples through generations and it is when we talk about the experience that we can begin to heal. No more shame, no more secrecy. Until next time, stay curious and be well.